Amen. You may be seated. Turn with me in your copy of Scripture, if you would, to Acts chapter 8. We're continuing our way through the book of Acts, learning about the early church. Um, For those of you who are first-time guests with us this morning, our general approach is to, uh, to work our way through books of the Bible, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And so if you're joining with us for the first time this morning, you're coming in midway into the middle of a story. That's okay. We still want you to be here. We still want you to join with us in the study of God's Word. Uh, But we fully recognize that uh, you may not have the full plot figured out. And so I'll do the best that I can just to make sure you're grounded and you understand where we are at in everything. Um, the, The Lord Jesus Christ has been crucified And he has given a commission to his disciples that they would go and be his witnesses and tell about the salvation that is available to all the world. The salvation that resides in no one else other than him and his finished work on the cross, dying on the cross in order to bear the penalty of our sins, the wrath of God to be fully absorbed in the person of Christ as he is suffering on the cross in our place. And it is through hoping in that work, that finished work of what Christ has done, that now all the world can be forgiven of their sins and reconciled to the Father through what Christ has done on the cross. He raises from the dead after three days, proving that he alone has the power over death and that he can grant salvation and resurrection to all who will hope in him. And he wants everyone to know about this amazing news that we call the gospel. And so he commissions his disciples to go into the, all the way to the ends of the earth to carry this message. And in Acts chapter 8, we find that the church is moving out of Jerusalem and moving into Samaria, a region just north of Judea. And they're going to go from there to the ends of the empire. In chapter 8, verse 1, it says... There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Verse 4 says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And as Jeanette read for us this morning, we encounter one man in particular, a magician, a sorcerer by the name of Simon, who heard this message, Luke describes his response as a type of faith. And we find out as we work our way through the text this morning that it was a false faith, a false form of believing. And so before we jump in this morning, I'd like to just bow and ask God to help us, that his spirit would illuminate the text before us and that he would he would guide us into an understanding of his word, and then, and then we'll get to work. So if you would, please just pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the faithfulness of the church to take the gospel and obedience to you to the ends of the earth, and we thank you, Lord, for the instruction that is provided to us through your word. As these men encountered various responses to their preaching, be it persecution, be it rejection, or be it blind faith, false faith, Whatever the response, we pray, O Lord, that you would instruct us from your word, that we would be mindful of all of these different responses, and that we would be careful, Lord, to bear a true witness to you in the face of these various responses, that we would be ministers of the word who are accurate, who rightly divide the word of truth, 
and rightly recognize where your saving power has come. If there are any here today, O oh Lord, who are perhaps believing with the wrong kind of faith, we pray for your conviction. We pray that you'd open our eyes to see this truth from your word. We ask that you'd work in our hearts this morning, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Very regularly, my family will travel down to Vancouver or somewhere in the lower mainland for different functions or different events, different things going on with the kids. And as any dad or any mom with kids will tell you, after you've been in the vehicle for all of about 25 minutes, the question starts to come, how long until we get there? How long until we get there? And a while back, uh, we were driving and I came across a sign somewhere around Hope, somewhere in there that said, you know, another 76 kilometers to... Uh, to Abbotsford or something like that. And we were going to a place in Abbotsford and my child had asked me just before we arrived at that sign, how much longer until we get to wherever it is we're going? We've been in the car for two hours at this point. How much longer? And I look up and right there I see a sign that says 76 more kilometers to Abbotsford. And so I immediately replied to my child, guess what? Good news, 76 more kilometers. Now to a five-year-old, that doesn't really mean anything. 76 more kilometers. What does that mean? Now, my kids are into this dragon thing. Uh, some of you parents are like nodding. I mean, you can relate to um, How to Train Your Dragon, the movie series that's come out. They've got a, a cartoon version of it, a short sort of TV series. Each episode in this short TV series is about 20 minutes. So in order to help my kids understand how much longer it would take us to get to Abbotsford, recognizing it's 76 kilometers, I'm doing about 100 kilometers an hour, basic, I mean not exact, but basic math, it's going to be about another hour until we get there, give or take. I'm thinking, okay, how can I help them break this down? So I tell them, they're not like watching TV in the car, we all get car sick with that sort of stuff, but I tell them it's going to be about four more episodes Oh, sorry, three more episodes. I can't even do math. Three more episodes. So 20 minutes an episode, 60 minutes, okay. Three more episodes of How to Train Your Dragon until we get to where we're going. And they can understand that because they have a reckoning of time as it pertains to watching this show. They don't have a reckoning of time as it pertains to how fast you cover a particular distance. What's important to them Whereas you and I as adults can say to each other, it's going to be so many kilometers until we get to where we're going. Kids don't get kilometers, and so they need a different way of appreciating the distance or the time necessary to get to where we're going. Whether you're using a kilometer sign or whether you're giving the indication by means of a sequence of TV shows, either way, you're just giving an indication of how long it gets, how long it's going to take until you get to where you're going. The sign points you towards your destination. It tells you how close you are to your destination, but the sign is not the destination. In the book of Acts, miracles are routinely performed all throughout. But from the very beginning, Luke is careful to let us know that these miracles are signs that are intended to point us to the destination. And from the very beginning, Luke is careful to help us know that the destination towards which all these signs, all these miracles are pointing is in fact Jesus Christ. Don't flip there, just listen. Acts 2.22 
Peter preaching at Pentecost, men of Israel, hear these words. He says, listen, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you, that is testified to you, by God with mighty signs and wonders that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter says, you know who he is because he did the signs which prove who he is. The signs are not the same as Jesus, but the signs show you that Jesus is no ordinary man. That is the nature of all supernatural activity. Anytime a miracle is performed, anytime that something is done that is beyond normal, beyond the ordinary, there is a clear display of supernatural power. We understand that that supernatural power can only come by the hand of God who stands outside of nature who is beyond nature, who is himself supernatural. And when he chooses to break the laws of physics, to defy the ordinary, normal, day-to-day workings of nature, to defy our world as it is governed by the normal, running, usual pattern of things, when he does that, it is because he wants to draw your attention not to the sign but to what the sign is intended to point to, to let you know that he thinks this is important and this is what you should be looking at. Anyone among us, if we're driving and we see a sign, for example, we're driving to Abbotsford and we see a sign 76 more kilometers to Abbotsford, we give thanks for that knowledge because it helps us know, okay, do I need to stop now and use the washroom or do I think I can go another hour and use the washroom when I get there? But we know where it is we're going. We don't see the sign saying 76 more kilometers to Abbotsford and pull over and say, woohoo, this is great knowledge. Let's just camp out here on the side of the freeway with the sign. We don't do that. This is what Simon is doing. And the warning that I want to give to you from this text this morning is that while signs and miracles are wonderful for pointing us to Christ, there is within them a danger that we should be aware of. We can believe in the sign, we can recognize the supernatural, and we can have a kind of faith in those things which misses looking to Jesus Christ. Look with me in the text, verse 4. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip, he's a deacon. We first encountered him back in Acts chapter 6. Philip, he goes down to the city of Samaria and he proclaims to them the Christ. That is the first statement that the Bible makes to us. That is the first thing Luke wants you to see. He proclaims Christ. Where? He proclaims him in Samaria. The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him. Notice the order again. He comes preaching first. They're listening to his preaching, and he is preaching Jesus. That is what Luke wants you to get get a hold of. That is of primary significance. Now come the miracles. It says, they listened to what was being said by Philip when they heard him, and they saw, notice this, the signs that he did. Luke is careful to categorize the miracles which are about to follow under the category of a sign. That is something that points to something else. And he's already told you what he wants you to see. He wants you to see Christ. These guys are seeing Christ through the preaching of Philip. 
It goes forward. Verse 7, unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Okay, This is the setting in which we encounter Simon. He's going to be introduced to us in the very next verse. Now, the first thing, again, that Luke wants us to see here as he introduces this is that people were believing Christ was being preached. The miracles which were performed, namely the driving out of unclean spirits and people being healed of lameness, so forth and so on, all of this was pointing to the supernatural reality that Jesus is Savior and Lord. And now we meet Simon. And the thing that Luke wants to warn us about in this particular text, again, as we look at Simon, is that there is a kind of faith, there is a kind of believing that does not save, that does not result in salvation. This faith, this believing, can appear to be genuine because it rises in the presence of true preaching, but it is still false. Verse 13, it says, talking about this guy, Simon, that he believed that he was baptized and that after having believed and after having been baptized, he continued, notice that phrase, he continued with Philip. Philip comes, he preaches, Simon hears the word, he sees the signs, he sees the miracles, he says, great. It says he believed He was baptized, and he even continued along with Philip. But then something happens later on in the passage that shows us that this belief was false. The apostles, Peter and others, come down from Jerusalem. They lay hands on the Samaritans so that they may receive the Holy Spirit. And then I want you to jump down and look in verse 18. Here's what happened. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, cash. And he said, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He wants to be able to confer the Holy Spirit, to work that sign, to perform that miracle. And he's trying to obtain that power through a cash transaction. Peter's response, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart isn't right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are still in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Now I take that to mean from Peter that he's not saved. He says you have no part in this matter. What matter is Peter referring to? That salvation has come to the Samaritans. And Simon comes forward and says, hey, I want to be able to give the Holy Spirit like you guys, and so here's some cash if you'll let me have that ability. And Peter's response is, you don't have anything to do with this. Now, looking at the context, I take that to mean that Peter is looking at the response of Simon the actions that he's engaging in, he is concluding, based on what he's observing, that Simon's not saved. And yet, and yet, if we look at this, going back to verse 13, Luke makes the statement, he believed, and he continued. He continued. He, it says in verse 13, he, as Philip preached the good news, Simon believed, right? And he was baptized, right? And he continued, 
He continued. There is this element in the life of Simon where he continues walking along with Philip, with his preaching, and yet we know from the end of the passage that he had no part in the whole thing. Luke still describes it as a form of belief. And so we take from that a very serious warning. As we're all gathered here today, listening to preaching, maybe even enjoying the sermon, we could still be sitting here hearing the word of Christ, true preaching. There could be people all around us who are truly saved. And we think, as we look at them and as we hear the sermon, that we're saved too. And yet it's possible that we're not. There are other parallels of this phenomenon that are referred to within the scriptures. Jesus talks about a false form of faith when he teaches the parable of the four soils. In Luke 8, 13, don't flip there, just listen. Jesus describes the second soil like this. He says, quote, the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, when they hear biblical preaching, they receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in a time of temptation, they fall away. In other words, Jesus' teaching in the parable of the four soils is that they do like what they're hearing, but it does not take root or transform in their heart in such a way that they're capable of withstanding the heating, scorching temperatures of the sun. Paul taught the same possibility in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2, when he said to the Corinthians, to the church at Corinth, he said, I preached to you the gospel which you received, past tense, you took it, you received it, in which you stand which you are standing, by which you are saved, if you hold it fast. And then he offers this qualification at the very end, unless you believed in vain. What an ominous warning. I am preaching to the gospel which you receive, which you heard, which you hold on to, which you're believing, which you're standing in, unless, of course, all of that was vanity, done in vain, done to no good effort. This same type of faith is talked about in the book of James. James calls it a barren faith, or in chapter 2 of that same book, he calls it a, a dead faith, a faith that does not work itself out into practical everyday life. And so we see multiple parallels of this, and we see as we look at Simon here, this is his faith, a false faith. I conclude that Luke's point here in Acts chapter 8, as far as Simon is concerned, is that Simon's faith, or his believing, as Luke t calls it, is not a saving faith, but a false faith, dead faith, as James would refer to it, barren, empty faith. And that's the first step in Luke's warning to us this morning. We need to be aware that there is such a thing as believing, which is not real believing. And we need to recognize that that believing can rise up in the presence of true biblical gospel preaching. There's nothing wrong with what Philip is preaching. There are people getting saved. And then there are people who think they're getting saved. What exactly constitutes salvation? 
A number of years ago, in the middle of the 19th century, in 1859, specifically on June 30th, there was a fellow from Britain by the name of Charles Blondin who became something of a worldwide celebrity, something of a worldwide uh, famous person for his ability to walk on tightropes. He strung a tightrope across the Niagara Falls, and he successfully walked all the way across the length of the Niagara Falls just on this tightrope. He went from the American side over to the Canadian side, and all the Canadians were there clapping and cheering. And then uh, waiting for him on the Canadian side was a wheelbarrow full of a sack of potatoes, which he then picked up, put on the tightrope, and walked all the way back across to the American side. He got back to the American side, dumped out his sack of potatoes, and of course all the Americans are there just clapping and cheering for him, so impressed by the fact that he'd gone across, gotten a wheelbarrow full of potatoes, and brought it all the way back. And as the Americans were cheering, Charles Blondin posed this question to the crowd gathered there, do you believe that I can do this? And one unfortunate soul who is forever memorialized in preachers, sermon illustration books everywhere, stepped forward and said, yes, I believe that you can do this. And Charles Blondin said to him, do you really believe that I can do this? He said, I really believe it. To which Charles Blondin put the wheelbarrow back on the tightrope and said, hop in. And the American said, I don't think so. And he ran back across the American side of the border. He didn't actually believe. Now, what's fascinating is that Charles Blondin's stage manager was there that day. He's a British fellow, so no credit to the Americans on this one. And Charles Blondin said, do you believe? And of course, his stage manager had seen him do this so many times and had already volunteered so many times, but never across the Niagara Falls. This was a first for everyone. That he was willing to take what has become known since then as a leap of faith. And he put himself in that wheelbarrow. And Charles Blondin walked him across to the Canadian side. And because their hotel was still back on the American side, he brought him back across again in that same wheelbarrow. I got over to the Canadian side, and his manager said, well, my hotel's over there. He said, well, hop back in. We'll just do it again. When it comes to salvation, we recognize that Christ has the power over life and death. We see that what he is doing on the cross is saving us from our sins. And what we say is we like that. We like that you have the power to do this, much in the same way that Americans looked at Charles Blondin and said, we like that you have the power to go back and forth on this tightrope. And in churches all across Kamloops and all across the world, over and over again, that's the message that is proclaimed. Jesus can cross the divide he can die on the cross and he can forgive you of your sins. We hear that. We say, that's wonderful. I'm glad that he can do that. And yes, I do believe that he can do that. But the salvation that we're calling for, the salvation that the scriptures call for is not the kind of hope or the kind of faith that sees that something has been done and says, yes, I believe it can be done. I believe, in fact, that Jesus is the one who can do it. More so than that, the salvation that the scriptures are calling for is the kind of salvation that hops in the wheelbarrow, says, I want to go to the other side. Take me there. 
That is salvation. That requires surrender and a conviction that the impossible becomes possible only through Christ, but that it does, in fact, become possible. Simon sees the impossible, but consider this guy. He is himself a miracle worker. Look back at the text. Verse 9. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. Okay? Samaria is a city that is known for its practice of the occult. It's a city that is known for its celebration of magic and sorcery. It's a city that understands these things, that is enamored by these things, that had a man even amongst themselves doing these things, which they saw and celebrated. It says, verse 10, they had all paid attention to him from the least of them to the greatest of them. They all liked Simon. They all were praising him and in awe of his celebrity to do these amazing miracles. In fact, they were so convinced of his magical powers and his magical abilities that they said, verse 10, this man is the power of God that is called great. Verse 11, they had paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. All right? That's what the text says. You'll notice there that Luke's second part of the warning is that the thing in which Simon is believing, as Paul refers to it in 1 Corinthians 15, a faith that is in vain, the thing in which Simon is believing is the power or the miracle. You'll notice that. And, and just drop down a little bit further. It says, when the, verse 14, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. They came down, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he hadn't yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. A motivation that Simon had, the reason he offered the cash transaction, was not because he understood what it meant to have the Holy Spirit not because he understood what it meant to actually cross over to the other side and to be a child of God, to be transformed by the power of the cross and adopted as a son. He thought that was a gimmick. He thought that was just another part of the magic act. He performed magic for years. And when Philip shows up preaching Christ and doing his own signs and wonders, the signs and wonders that Philip are performing, they're cooler than his signs and wonders. It's a new show. It's a new act. And he's not as cool anymore. And because he likes the show, because he likes the performance, he crosses over quickly. He believes, allegedly. He gets baptized. He continues with Philip. And as soon as Peter and John show up, he says, okay, now it's my time. 
I've been with you guys. I've been doing this thing with you. I'll pay. I'll franchise it. I mean, I'll give you royalties. Let's do this thing. Give me this power so that I can do this power as well. You see, Simon wasn't looking to Christ. He wasn't looking beyond the sign to Jesus. He was looking at the sign. And he wanted the sign. The object of his faith, then, was the power and the miracle and the sign that was performed. This is what he was believing in. He believed that Philip was a real miracle worker and that there was real power there, and he didn't doubt it. He wasn't a skeptic. He wasn't one of these ones that was trying to look behind the smoke and mirrors to try and figure it out. He understood it was supernatural. But he still rejected the God who is the author of all that, which is supernatural. He thought he could get it for himself. The third thing that I want you to see here is that the root, the heart's desire behind Simon's faith, his believing, as it were, in miracles, was amazement. That's really what Luke is hammering at. He says it three times. In verse 9, he says that Simon had amazed the nation of Samaria with his magic, his sorcery. Then again, in verse 11, it says again that Simon had uh, amazed them a long time, a long time performing this magic. He'd amazed them. And then in verse 13b, after Philip has shown the power of God, it says, seeing the signs and the great miracles that Philip performed, Simon himself was amazed. This word amazed is repeated over and over and over again. And so what Luke is trying to show us is that the root behind Simon's false faith was amazement. We understand that he was amazed. We understand he was amazed at what Philip was doing, but we understand before all of this, he took great joy in the fact that people looked at him in amazement. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, unless you have believed in vain, there is this idea present there, and we see it here, where we are not so much interested in Jesus as we are interested in how it will make us look to others, how we can appear to the world around us. Now, undoubtedly, as we're all gathered here today, you know I'm no miracle worker. But when we gather here at First Baptist Church, could we not be falling into the same danger of gathering here hearing the sermon, hearing true biblical preaching, and yet it's just about looking godly. It's just about appearing a certain way that might impress our neighbors, our coworkers, our colleagues. And it's really not a faith that looks in obedience to Jesus. I see Miss Judy Gleason here on the, on the second row. And um, we're from the States. And we've got a thing in Texas called Bucky's Gas Station. And they've got a thing in New Mexico, at least in the, the eastern, the southeastern corner of it. I think maybe all over, but Allsup's? Am I remembering that right? Allsup's Gas Station. And um, I'll just tell you a little thing. I, I used to work uh, at Bucky's Gas Station. Uh, I'm from Hayes County. 
It's like a writing. It's the equivalent of a writing, what we have here that we call writings. In Texas, they call them counties. So I'm from Hayes County. Hayes County is predominantly Baptist. A bunch of Baptists got into city council, got under the, the county commissioning seat, and, and they made it a dry county. They essentially outlawed alcohol. And this was the case all through my childhood years growing up. Well, just across the county line was a Bucky's gas station in Travis County. And, and Travis County was a, what they called a wet county. So they sold alcohol in Travis County. So everybody from Hayes County would travel across, just right across the county line, to Bucky's to go buy alcohol and then, of course, go buy go back home. And so I worked at this gas station, and uh, I worked there doing a number of jobs throughout high school, um, stocking the refrigerators. It was a gas station. That's what you need to remember. It's a gas station. And so you go there to this gas station ostensibly just to fill up your car with gas to continue on your way. It's on Highway 290. It's in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing anywhere around. It's just a gas station that has, over time, because of its strategic location right at the county line, morphed into this almost shopping mall unto itself. It was the place where you went to go get gas and buy alcohol. That's how I understood it growing up. Now, you go here to this gas station, and it's franchised. There are other Bucky's popping up everywhere around the state now. You go to this gas station, and you can buy ribs, barbecue, and I'm here to tell you, you know, we've got Rib Fest coming up in August down here at Riverside Park. I mean, I'm not, this isn't me bragging, oh, look at us Texans, we're, we're all that. I'm being deadly serious here. The ribs and the brisket that you could get at this Bucky's gas station, they will beat anything you get at Rib Fest down here at the park. I, and if you don't believe me, in 2012, I'm just telling you the truth here, in 2012, we made a trip back to Texas Lydia McAndrew went with us. She's had the gas station barbecue. She's given witness from the back corner there. It is like even at the gas station, the brisket, the barbecue, the pulled pork, whatever, it's better than anything you're going to get down here. And here's the thing. This Bucky's morphed into this thing. They had like a gift shop with like Texas paraphernalia and, they, and, and Dallas Cowboys paraphernalia. And they had like a, like a place where you could go to have your, your pets and your dogs groomed and, you know, cleaned, bathed, what have you. And, and all of these sort of services just sprung up. And it, it went from being this place where you'd go just to buy gas to continue on your way to your destination to where now, ironically enough, the gas station is, in fact, the destination. We're not going to the gas station to fill up the car and keep on rolling. No, 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 we're going to the gas station. That's where we're going, and we're going to fill up the car with gas on a Friday night. We're going to grab dinner at the, uh, the rib joint that's there at the gas station. We're going to peruse around, look at all the paraphernalia and merchandise that they're selling. It becomes this end-all, be-all into itself. And I noticed the same thing. I went to visit Kyla and, and Ryan in Lovington, in their hometown of New Mexico, and they have the same thing there. They don't call it Bucky's. They call it All Sup's Gas Station. And they have this amazing New Mexican burrito. It's unbelievable. I mean, and this is the other thing. You Canadians don't know anything about Mexican food. I love you. God bless you. But you don't know anything about Mexican food. I've gone to all kinds of Mexican restaurants. Kyla says, let's go to the gas station to get a burrito. I'm like, really? Like, come on. Like, you know, New Mexicans are weird, but this is when you're like, you guys are really kind of off your rocker. But we go. We go to the gas station. Normally, you go there to buy gas, but instead, we go to get the burrito, and it was fantastic. 
best burrito I had the whole time I was in New Mexico. Why do I share all this with you? Because it's a fitting illustration to the reality that we can be quickly enamored with things that are not final or ultimate. The signs and the wonders are wonderful. They defy the natural. They are, in fact, supernatural. And the point of all of that is to draw our gaze and our focus to the Christ who was first preached, who stands behind those signs and those wonders. In the same way that we used to just go to gas stations to get gas so we could go to have dinner with our family, to go meet with our friends, to continue on our journey to wherever the destination should be. The people at that gas station want your money. And they are laboring hard to get you to stay there. It's their business. And it should not surprise us then that whereas God would grant that miracles and signs would be performed to draw our gaze to Christ, Satan will quickly step in and say, this is wonderful. Don't look any further. Stay here with the sign. Stay here with the miracle. And so as I'm applying this message to all of us here this morning, listen, Josh Claycamp preaching the word. This is not the destination. Time and again, we come to church and we say, "Mm, I'm going to give that sermon a 7 out of 10. Good good jokes at the beginning. He kind of fell off at the end. It kind of ran long. But man, he had a great introduction. And it was a fitting bookend conclusion that matched the introduction. We talk about the stories that were told. I have no doubt half of you are going to go home today and you're going to talk about the craziness of Bucky's gas stations in Texas or Allsup's gas stations in New Mexico. And none of us are going to stop for a second and dwell on the fact that the preaching that is to happen here every week, the worship that is to happen here every week should cause us to dwell on the deeper eternal truths to which all of this is supposed to be pointing. Christ. We come in and we say, I want to feel a certain way. Therefore, I want the environment in the room to be a certain way. I want the worship to go a certain way. And at the end of the day, I want the sermon to be preached a certain way. All of this is very, very basic Christianity that cannot look beyond these earthly things to the eternal one to whom they're all supposed to point. People come into church all the time, haven't been here in a while, don't recognize where their friends are now sitting, get confused, say, I don't know where I should sit. Well, I came into the church. I had been six or seven weeks since I'd been there, and I didn't recognize any of the people who were sitting in my same spot where I always used to sit, and I decided I didn't like it. So I'm not going to come back for another six to eight weeks. Your seat is given to you to point you to Jesus. Did you not notice Jesus was walking amongst us today? Did you not come to worship him? Did you really come for the show? Did you really come for the environment, the worship, whatever that was, the sermon, whatever that was? Or did you come to gaze upon Christ, to see Jesus? 
in many respects, our churches become like Bucky's gas stations. They're not places where we're stopping as we're journeying and focusing our gaze to Christ. They're places where we're stopping to focus on here and what's going on here. For many of us then, our faith in Christ becomes very much so about which gas station is the cooler gas station to go to. Our faith in Christ is no longer about the road of suffering and sacrifice and loving each other and pouring our lives into each other. It's very much so about where the better brisket or the better burrito can be found. Simon asks to receive this power by means of money, thinking it's a transaction. He's approaching it like a good consumer. You name your price and we'll negotiate Peter's response, his response, repent, your heart is not right before the Lord. Repent and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. prayer. Is there anything fancy or showy about a prayer? I've seen fancy and showy prayers, as I'm sure you have too. But as the story comes to an end with Simon, the conclusion of the matter is this. No fancy show of miracle, no fancy display of sorcery or witchcraft or power is going to save you, Simon. God in heaven alone can save you. And at the end of the day, if you would be saved, you must go before him. And his response is, pray for me. That's how we all enter into the kingdom of heaven. It isn't by the goodness of the word that is preached, the goodness, I should say, or the clever rhetoric of the preacher who preaches the word, It is through hearing God speak to you through his word. There's no miracle. There's no grandiose display of power. I'm here to tell you, when you fall on your knees and you ask God to save you and your heart is transformed, there is no greater demonstration of power. The power which we should all be seeking, the miracle which we should all be looking for, is the miracle that comes through prayer when God does step into our hearts when he does transform us I can tell you right now they are up at Highland Valley Copper Mine moving a mountain they are tearing up a mountain and they're getting rid of it Jesus says if you have faith the size of a mustard seed you can say to this mountain uproot yourself and throw yourself into the ocean and it'll obey. Faith the size of a mustard seed. I don't think any of those miners necessarily up on that mountain have a great deal of faith per se, but they are tearing down the mountain. What's far harder and far more difficult than removing a mountain is seeing God's salvation come. And the reason why I say it is difficult and hard is because 
no matter how biblically centered the sermon is, no matter how faithful week in and week out we are to present the gospel over and over and over and over again, at the end of the day, there's only one person who can bring salvation. There's only one person who can deliver you. And it has nothing to do with my preaching, has nothing to do with the worship that goes on here from week to week, has nothing to do with the comfort of the seats or the friends you know who are sitting around you, has nothing to do with any of those things. At the end of the day, it all comes down to whether or not you will get on your face before God and cry out for his salvation in true, humble, broken repentance. Recognizing that you cannot force his hand, you cannot compel him to do anything. You jump in the wheelbarrow, you prepare to cross the falls and you let him take you wherever that is that is the only thing that will save you and my prayer for you this morning First Baptist Church if you are here listening to the preaching listening to the worship I wouldn't simply stop at that but through prayer and surrender you put yourself in that wheelbarrow right across with the Lord Christ let's pray Father, we ask that you would compel all of us to look to Jesus. To look to Christ. And that once we see him, that we would give ourselves to him. The fear that I have, Lord, is that a great many of us come to be enamored with the sermon, to hear good worship, to talk to our friends, to enjoy the comfortable seats. That this has become nothing more than a really fancy gas station. I pray, Lord, that if there are any among us today who are celebrating the gas station and missing you, that you would open their eyes to see that they are indeed still trapped in iniquity and the gall of bitterness. That you would show them that salvation comes only by speaking to you, walking with you, praying. God, I pray for those who are here that you would open their eyes if that is the case in their heart. That you would convict them that you would bring them to broken-hearted repentance and prayer, that you would bring salvation and carry us across the falls. Do that, we pray, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.